You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 174, Dr. Sibella Georgiana, Misconceptions About Sexual Compulsivity. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to the Indian Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, one of the great assets, I believe, that we have at the Global Center for Women and Justice is the academic work and research that's so much a part of us being integrated highly into the higher education institution at Vanguard University. And of course, a big part of our work is studying the issues. And I'm so glad today that we have a guest who's an expert in studying these issues that will really help us to uh, either get, also get to some really new perspective on something I don't think we've talked about much before. Absolutely. So I'll let you take it away and introduce her. I'm pleased to welcome to the show today, Dr. Sibella Georgiana. She is a clinical psychologist and the founder of The Leadership Practice and its affiliate Sexual Health of Orange County, California. As a certified sex therapist, certified sex addiction therapist, certified clinical partner specialist, and certified EMDR therapist, Sibella is treating teens and adults experiencing sexual difficulties and compulsions. She is also an assistant faculty of Vanguard University of Southern California, where she teaches and oversees the graduate research programs of Vanguard's Masters of Organizational Psychology students. Sabella's research and publications are focusing on self-regulation and self-leadership. She enjoys her family, surfing, and Southern California's weather. We're so glad to welcome you to the show, Sabella. Thank you for having me. Uh, the weather, I had to put that in there in the description. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, and I, I know, you know, you come from an area in Europe where it's much colder, right? Yes. I grew up in Germany and went to school there, and it was very much like the northern, northwest coast here in the United States. So I appreciate any, any little bit of sunshine that we can get here. Well, for me, it's been such a delight to get to know you this year, and I'm so glad you're at Vanguard. And you spoke at Ensure Justice, uh, where we began a conversation that I hadn't really studied a lot before. And what I understood was that we in our communities often have a lot of misperceptions about sexual compulsivity. And if anybody's listening and you missed Ensure Justice, we'll put a link to the recordings and you can hear Dr. Georgiana and many others by clicking on that link. But let's jump into this and look at just a few of these perceptions that we have and talk about those. So the first one is that sexual addiction and compulsivity does not exist. So talk to us about that, Dr. Georgiana. Yes, and I um, appreciate the share um, on this. As, as really, we don't really have guidelines that I get fully accepted in the medical community, in the psychiatric community, and they are just listed as a um, condition to explore further and that need more research. And at the same time, we can now also see that individuals uh, that are being studied uh, using brain scans who are describing sexual compulsivity to the providers 
coming in that they have a very similar brain activity to a cocaine addiction that we see in uh, the addicted individual's brain. So the compulsivity, even if we don't have clear guidelines yet that are embraced um, in the treatment com community, however, we see that there is physical evidence um, that uh, our nowadays technology can provide. And we do hope that this physical evidence uh, will be used to then also support a clear diagnosis and something that is being embraced as a viable diagnosis in the medical community. Okay. And, and I think it's important for some of our listeners with a professional background to understand that part of that is taken from the DSM-4 so that we understand that we're talking about classifications that are tracked and recognized across the psychological intellectual community, so to speak. And because yes. you are so precise, I made really a lot of notes so that I can be equally as precise. I admire your attention to detail. You're one of the most accomplished research professors on this subject that I have ever met. And so when you were speaking at Insured Justice, one of the misconceptions that you addressed is that sex work is a choice that women consent to it and can make a lot of money. And that was really a departure from your normal language, but it captured the attention of so many people who were attending Insure Justice. Can you speak to that and why that's not true? Thank you for um, for that background. I think what is so difficult in this in this conversation is that we do have some you know medical information, we have some studies and surveys, and then we have information that, for instance, you know, everybody can basically broadcast through, through social media. And that piece of the misperception that this is something that people choose and there is like really no strings attached apart from just generating a, um, an income source is uh, really reflected more on what we see in, uh, let's say, YouTube videos and what is so commonly portrayed in the media, social media. And, and so, but however, if we really would then have a survey, assess, interview, really go in depth with the person who may have presented themselves in a social media way, that way, we may see that in reality there is, like, you know, a, a very high risk for post-traumatic stress, complex post-traumatic stress, and that we don't know the intricate power struggles that the person may face in their setup that led them to this line of generating income. And we see in the studies that a lot of times it comes a little bit through the back door. So it's a you know, very enticing thing maybe to receive a gift in exchange for being with somebody. And then it goes into something that can supplement uh, needed income. We live in an area where there is a lot of, basically the cost of living is very high and schooling is very expensive. And so it's not necessarily, it, it, it could be like a byproduct of, of what we're dealing with in the society. And at the same time, how this is being described in the media is in a very glorified way that it's not really uh, representing the reality and the mental health or physical health piece that a lot of times is associated, unfortunately, with that type of sexual behavior. It's really interesting. Our last guest on episode number 173 was Harmony Dust. Mm -hmm. What she said mm -hmm. was that choice without options isn't really choice. Yes. 
And I would really highly recommend when you look at her testimony, she is an, really a, an amazing example how then she turned this situation where she was affected by and that prompted her to go into this type of outlet really now that she can she can really empower women. And so, yes, I think that is like a fantastic example of how, um, you know, it's over-glorified. Uh, you know, we, we go into this field uh, thinking that it would be a real solution to the difficulties that are being experienced in, you know, in many of these um, individuals who, who are going into this line of uh, financial support. And, and then, however, there are ways and more and more resources out of this. Uh, but we as consumers of social media are still affected by what we see and, you know, how basically it may be also funded advertisement to to give a certain message that this is a choice, that this is something where, you know, people can find a lucrative way to um, sustain themselves. Well, in, in, in that section, when you were at Insured Justice, you connected substance abuse, drugs, with the complexity of of this issue. Yes, and so there is, unfortunately, that we see, and we do not know what comes first, like we can understand that if people have, people have already grew up in very hard circumstances where maybe drugs were introduced in order to really, you know, decrease the, the stress response from the trauma, then the drugs could be something that's first, and then the use of sexuality could be an added piece in order to to get to the drugs for consumption, or it could be the other way where we see that, unfortunately, again, with individuals with sexual compulsivity, they also report a higher use of um, other substances. And then basically those two substances are past, you know, that basically activate our brain's reward center and can really cause that addictive damage to uh, the brain. They can interact and kind of feed onto each other and then therefore makes it a more complex situation to attend to. And even as a, as a service provider to be aware of that, you know, this detailed type of screening or even like treatment recommendations that need to address multiple of these um, addiction tracks need to be part of the aftercare uh, program. So are we using the word addiction and compulsivity as synonyms? Well, thank you for that. So the compulsivity is a lot of times understood part more of like a, like what we would see in OCD, um, some kind of like a compulsive pattern. It's not defined as like an addiction potential. Now, when we use addiction as a word, it means that there has been this effort that we wanted to stop, that doesn't work, we need to consume more. There are these typical criteria that can be met. Now, and what, you know, people use that interchangeably. I um, usually then start talking about addiction, really when we see that there is a certain loss of control and certain addiction-related criteria being met. But what this animal of what we're dealing with, with the sexuality and these other outlets, substances, emotions, uh, and even how we use technology and our fast-paced world, they all um, can have this kind of compulsive nature to it if that, if we leave it unattended, can then really truly move to the level of an addiction pattern in the brain. 
And thank you for that. Oh, that's so interesting. So the addiction is lack of control and the compulsivity, there is some sort of of control attempt. So let's say it's basically if we talk about a phenomenon from very different perspectives. So with an addiction, we see it's a which is what the World Health Organization says, a progressive brain disease that may even cause premature death. And then, um, and at the same time, some of the pieces that we see in the compulsivity, they run on the same pathways in the brain, the difficulties to stop, the thing that we think we just do one thing, and if we do this one thing, then we'll be safe, then we'll be good. And I think they can go into an addictive pattern where there's a loss of control and the brain wanting more and more to reduce, you know, to produce the same results. But let's say how the, the researchers or how sometimes even the medical community looks at it is that, you know, compulsivity sometimes can be looked as more as a thing with impulse control, but not necessarily having the severe impact of a progressive brain disease as okay. we see it defined by the World Health Organization. So, so it, the people will have different lenses onto the same topic, but you know the severity of this, whether we call it compulsivity or we let it move into an addiction pattern, the severity of the impact of the brain, a lot of times we underestimate because we may not see it or we may see some changes that are very positive, but we don't, we're not necessarily aware that uh, there may be severe brain chemistry that we still need to attend to and, um, you know, even if we move individuals into like a safe housing facility or if we see people decrease their um, substance use, you know, there may be still other pieces we need to attend to to really move people into health. And that's kind of where you went next. You talked about the absence of old acting out compulsive addictive behaviors that we think mean, okay, they're no longer at risk, but that's not true, right? Yes, unfortunately, the brain wants to be always outsmarting us a little bit by saying, well, you know, if we don't get it through the sexuality and maybe the the physiological release that comes with that, you know, we could just go into something else, maybe something where we move into a different type of, um, you know, unhealthy relationship where the brain doesn't necessarily give us a feel-good feeling, but the brain gets the same amount of pressure in the reward center or it may move into uh, like, a with, like a withholding pattern. So the interesting thing is like whether we do too much or too little to the brain, it can make the reward center go into happy mode. And so even by not showing certain behaviors, which would be withholding, we can get a brain you know, hit. And so the brain is still not healthy. It's still not in moderation it's still maybe under stress or post-traumatic stress. And so, you know, we still want to attend to these residual pieces that, you know, we may think, oh, they are abstaining now, it's all done, when in reality it may be part of that, um, you know, suppressing component um, that would also give the brain, you know, that happy feeling of so, rewards and activation. So you describe that as a moving target, during this lecture, and I was really concerned that I wouldn't, as a as a normal everyday advocate and 
engaging with survivors, especially, um, I wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to recognize and and respond appropriately to someone escaping that kind of behavior. It, that is a very, very good comment because we're so focused on providing, you know, the, the level of physiological safety, um, you know, health. And so I think the, the awareness that there could be more, so having a, an assessment that may potentially ask even these very difficult questions around sexuality. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the person who assesses needs to be the one uh, then also helping the person with treatment, but they are a specialist or there could be even, you know, continuing education on this um, being received. But at the same time, sometimes even in the setup of services, if there wasn't a, a place to have recommendations and then potentially even maybe even um, considering to have some just workshops on these different components so that the providers know, okay, this is something that could, I, they could experience with the client coming in and with the victim that they are supporting. But it could be also something that maybe the caseworker sees six months down the road or the person in the state housing facility notices. So it's as if we want to give as much information as possible to our team of support so that that support as needed, but let's say when it's needed, that it's somehow also accessible and that we don't feel we need to have it all attended to in the first part of the treatment, but maybe that some of this needs to be attended to over the course of the work that we do. So very clearly, this is a complex issue and requires expertise, and you have provided some resources to help us figure that out, right? Yes. So there are, first of all, the materials through the Insured Justice Conference where there's just sometimes the the information and going through that, that's one way to receive it. I do host, um, I call them Thrive Workshops, in which, uh, you know, individuals can call in, providers can call in, and that's really more around education on what compulsivity looks like. But even for the listeners here, we would have the show notes, I think, where we could put the, um, there is a very simple screening tool that was developed from a more substance abuse background. It's called the PATHOS, where we're looking at uh, just very, you know, six or seven questions where it can be very easily identified if there is a potential for sexual compulsivity present so that the provider can, and this is something that will be in the show notes, if I understand that correctly. Yes, we'll do that. Get that through the website so that basically we can write from the get-go say, oh, you know, maybe there is something else that we need to attend to. And that basically we could then, uh, and this is the focus of this is really to build that support for the providers that we know we can pick up the phone and say, okay, or we can, you know, go to a workshop and attend, or we can invite somebody in to say, and to provide more psychoeducation on this matter, as we are not alone in um, supporting our, the, the people we work with and we work for. And that was really an important piece for me because I felt a little overwhelmed, but knowing that I have access to a tool that will give me some guidance kind of helps me process some of the other issues that you raised. And in my world where you remember I'm from a pediatric nursing background, I've always been concerned with how our culture helps 
a young girl or a boy under the age of 18. But when they reach 18, there is this sense that Mm -hmm. they're at the age of majority and they can be held accountable for their actions. But you saw that as kind of a misconception in terms of this area of addiction and compulsivity. Yes, and I think the difficult piece is that we all live in a legal, in a world that is governed by laws and regulations to really protect us and be at our best as as a society. And at the same time, with with that, then comes the uh, responsibility also to to then, as we are off um, age, that we are also then having, uh, as it sometimes seems to be then implied, that we have that full capacity to to um, be aware and to operate in the legal boundaries. And I do think that with today's complex world and then even the, the, um, the social media setup or technology setup that we don't really see a consequence necessarily for our actions, that it really makes the part of us that grows up and that is then able to make good choices and be bound to legal um, decisions it's as if it's not yet fully, or it, it could stunt the development of this piece in us that has good reasoning, that knows that there's going to be consequences for our actions. And so we may deal with, apart from, you know, individuals affected by horrible circumstances where we know that the brain development is not as mature as in a healthy individual, we may in addition deal with these parts in our um, current environment where we are not trained enough to say, okay, with what I post, there is a legal consequence or could be a legal consequence. So so that basically we're, we're going into this whole adulthood, maybe potentially a little bit underprepared than when things were all face-to-face with real tangible consequences. So then in simple, more simple terms, then we're saying that this person's brain development has not prepared them to make good decisions, to process information um, the same way that you and I do. And they actually are way behind in emotional maturity, right? Yes, that could be. And I know that in the aiming clinic, they do a lot of research on brain rehabilitation and um, that there are strategies we can even, um, you know, give um, the, the person with a more developing brain um, so that this maturity can be nurtured and grown, and it's if we put our brain on a on an um, you know on an exercise path, but also, uh, and I think that's why that community of support is so vital. With a person who doesn't have these resources, maybe to begin with, somebody you know gets to be the one who who sets up that pathway to health. And so I do think that looking at the individuals, not just the biological health and the biological age. I love that new term. I'm going to add it to my vocabulary, putting myself on a brain pathway. How did you say that? Yes. Oh, it was more like a, like an exercise. Like a, yes. Like as if you go and we, we, we exercise our brain and oh, we don't that's really great. think about it like that. So I'm I'm really excited because something, the light just came on because a lot of the terminology talking about um, social media from the beginning of this conversation, it is connected to this because we make decisions to go on and click, 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 click. And we have to develop new exercises for our brain to not click because that chronic overstimulation actually works against our healing and, and restoration. So 
somehow I'm thinking there's a link here, especially to pornography. And can you can you give us like a, a one minute answer to that huge question? <laughs> I know. I'm asking the impossible. <laughs> so let's think about that. How we can make that in one minute? Okay. So in let's say the use of technology in that way, a lot of times in the in the let's say the sex addiction terminology the intimacy disorder behavior that goes with that potentially addictive sexuality is a lack of intimacy skills. Now, the technology, they call it the big accelerator. Um, It's the triple A engine because when we are online, by the way, how how this is set up, so porn sites, so even just in general, how, how, um, you know, technology interacts with the brain is that it provides to the brain this illusion that, to anything that we're facing, the technology has, a, has an answer because we can browse, we could switch, there's more things that pop up. And that is, you know, such a silent hook on the brain that, you know, it's, it's, if it answers all of our unrequited wishes, it, it, it's, it's a solution to all of our problems, our grievances. And so that's why the technology is such um, an attractive distraction to the brain and then with pornography, it then also activates our hormones and our physiological arousal response, and that makes that impact even stronger. So I don't know where I'm moving in 60 seconds. Yes. But that's potentially one of these engines, you know, that, that makes it so hard to disengage from. That's really helpful for me. So I hope it is for our listeners. And we're going to put show links in here because everything here is so in-depth. The last thing that you addressed, and I just want to leave people with hope for what this looks like in professional trainings. The misperception was that helping professionals work individually. And what we really need to see is a village or team approach. Yes, and I do think that what kept me being in this field is that I noticed that as a specialist, then you enter a you know a, a network of other providers in that field. So, for example, the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals offers the training to um, help really establish recovery tasks if it is a, at a at a level of an addiction that we see with individuals' sexuality. Also, there is an association for the partners of sex addicts, and they are also having a very trauma-informed approach so that the family as well can be supported. And then with the EMDR, which is the um, international association that helps systematically decrease the trauma load that many of the clients bring in. Again, it's, it's this notion that we need each other as a provider because we can't be all treating everybody ourselves and we may have then the support system that we can partner and that we could say, okay, we have individuals who do more psychoeducation or we see people who work specifically with children or uh, again with minors. So, and I think that gives me the hope to stay on this topic because I know I am not alone but also uh, the more and more we uh, share between different types of service providers, emergency response teams, and you know, other valuable um, organizations that we have in the community, the more we can decrease the individual overwhelm that we are otherwise facing. 
doing this important work. And I think that being in the best advocate to our own brain activity is the best gift we can give to the people that we work with, that, that we are staying as healthy as possible. I am going to work on my brain health, Dr. Georgiana, for sure. <laughs> and we're going to put links to your website. People can reach out to you through your website. We're going to put a link to the free resource assessment tool that you've given us. Wow, I'm going to have to listen to this podcast about three times to get everything down. This was so rich, and you've introduced new terms, new ways for us to think about how we're doing our work in ending the exploitation uh, through human trafficking and in our in our society. And I just want to thank you so much, and we'll look forward to future conversations. Thank you, and I'm so honored that you um, invited me on, and um, if there's any other resource and and you know even as you said you could reach out to the website and the main website is the leadership practice.biz so but i'm grateful that you put everything in there so anyway i can support you further i'm uh, i would be honored thank you well sandy and sibella i mean one of the things that i think is such an opportunity, but also a challenge uh, when folks are coming into this conversation about ending human trafficking is all of the things there are to learn. Uh, So Sandy, I have two calls to action for our listeners today. First of all, is to visit the show notes for all of the resources that Sibella has provided to us. Uh, So much there specifically on this topic, if you want to really dive in deep. That said, you may be coming to this conversation for the very first time. Maybe this is the first or second episode you've listened to. And if that is you, I'm also inviting you to take the very first step. Uh, If you hop online, uh, you have the opportunity to download a copy of Sandy's book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It's going to teach you the five critical things that Sandy has identified in her research and the research through the center that you should know before you join the fight against human trafficking. You can get access to that guide by visiting endinghumantrafficking.org. If you go there, that will give you access right on the front page there. And if you have a question about today's conversation, or maybe you'd like to know a bit more or uh, are seeking some additional resources, send us an email, feedback at endinghumantrafficking.org. That's the best way to reach us. And uh, we'll see if we can do our best to respond on a future episode. Sandy, uh, always a pleasure. And we'll be back again in uh, two weeks for our next conversation. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone. See you again in two weeks. Take care.